Welcome to Celebration Church Online. We are so glad that you've joined us. We want you to share this broadcast with as many people as you can. We believe that it will bless and encourage us all in this season. Remember to continue reaching out to your loved ones. Stay connected with each other, especially with your cell family. The Bible gives us a pattern to look out for one another. Let's speak His Word and His strength will carry us through. Continue checking our social media platforms for updates on Facebook and WhatsApp. We encourage you to share this content with all your friends and family. Well, good morning. It's very important to me today to bring a message that I believe is critical to the development of believers. You know, there's a lot of error that has crept into the body of Christ, and none is so insidious as the idea that there is an eternal security, that we are once saved, always saved. Now, I want to qualify that in saying that, you know, I think it's very hard that once we've given our lives to Jesus, if we're following after him and pursuing him, to be unsaved. But it is not assured for any man to be saved. So what I want to do is I want to begin to pick up today on the idea of what we've been speaking over the last few weeks. Uh, I've, been th- I've been speaking about a teaching that has crept into the church, and it's causing many to live as uh, a life that excuses their sinful practices or excuses their sin in general as something that God will wink at, and that once you're saved, uh, you don't need to worry about how you live because you are unable to be unsaved. And what is astounding is that sometimes this argument starts out sounding like uh, one side is arguing for sin and then the other side is arguing against sin. And sadly, so many do not see it that way uh, and can go on constantly trying to justify habitual sin in their lives or in the life of a Christian. The book of Romans is often used to teach this false doctrine of unconditional security. So in order to peel back the truth, I want to look at a few chapters in the book of Romans and deal with some of the contradictions of those who often take Paul's writings out of context. Now, context is a very important word when it comes to the study of the scriptures. The main passage that is used to uh, attempt to excuse sin in a Christian's life is found in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 21. And it says, For that which I do, I allow not. For that which I would, that I do not. But that which I hate, that I do. If then I do which I would not, I consent to the law that it is good. Now then it is no longer I that doeth, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would do, or the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that doeth, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Now, for many, that sounds like a bunch of double talk that Paul's kind of, what, what was he saying? 
But Paul is eloquently revealing the ongoing war between the flesh and the spirit of the born-again believer. But if anyone tries to use these verses to defend ongoing, careless, persistent sin in their life, or in that of another Christian, without looking at the context of Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 8, either side of this chapter, they're going to find themselves in error. You see, anytime scripture is taken out of context and seems to contradict other passages in the Bible or in the context of where we're reading, we have to take a firm look so that we don't get the wrong idea about what's being said. Sadly, many Christians use these verses in Romans 7 to numb the guilt and to quench the work of the Holy Spirit's convicting power in their lives. While they continue to carry out sinful things, things like adulteries and adulterous affairs or premarital sex or pornography, idolatry, unforgiveness, or even deceitful business deals. But you and I, we can confidently affirm that God Almighty never intended His Word to be used to encourage people to remain in sin, either directly or indirectly. So let's look at the context here, and we'll start with Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 verse 1 begins with this word. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, the answer is found in the next verse, verse 2. It says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? This is the ongoing theme for the rest of the chapter. It culminates in Paul giving further instructions and making reference to their own personal responsibility to bring their flesh under control. We have a responsibility to bring our flesh under control. Romans 6, 12 through 15 says this, and you all know it. It says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but Yield yourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Paul says, God forbid. You see, the message that the Holy Spirit is conveying through the Apostle Paul is one of holiness in our individual lives and one of individual responsibility to cooperate with God. It's a message of hope. It's a message of freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Romans 6 goes on in verses 16 through 22. It says, Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Oh, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members, servants unto uncleanness and unto iniquity, iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. 
For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. You see, we can see that Paul, the apostle, was not even slightly implying that it's okay for a believer to continue in sin. So now that we've looked at chapter 6, and we move on to chapter 7 with the understanding that Paul is not going to contradict what he just said in chapter 6, we see in chapter 7 that Paul is describing the power of the law and the inability of the flesh to keep the law. See, we have to remember that Paul was a Pharisee before he became a Christian. He had tried to keep the law perfectly. And in his own words, in Galatians 1.14, he says, I was more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. He had a zeal. And although he was zealous, he discovered that he could not fulfill the law. And this only proves the point that God made through the psalmist. Uh, when David wrote this in Psalm 14, verse 3, he says, they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Look, look how Paul starts out chapter 7. In chapter 7 he starts out, he says, and I think he's probably quoting this verse, or at least alluding to it in Psalm 14. In Romans 7, 1 he says, Know you not, brethren? For I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. Paul goes on to say that this truth is just like a woman who is set free to marry another because of the death of her husband. He says in the same way, a Christian is free to, is free to bear fruit by becoming dead to the law through the body of Christ. As a woman is dead to her marriage, if the husband dies, is free to remarry. We are free from sin or free from the law and able to bear fruit in Christ. Romans 7, verse 4. Wherefore, my brothers, or my brethren, you are also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So in chapter 6, we're told to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Then in chapter 7, we're told that we are dead to the law through Jesus' death. And then, uh, and, and that's so that we can be married to him who was raised from the dead. And this act of faith, this union with Jesus, is what enables us to bring forth the fruit. And it's fruit by his power, not our own power. See, Christianity isn't just the keeping of the law or obedience to some kind of a moral code. It is a relationship with God that gives us the power to, to love Him and to obey Him. This is why the Holy Spirit used the word married. He uses the simile or the, the example of marriage. And He uses it in Romans chapter 7 and 4. In other words, you and I can keep the rules without having a relationship. But if we have a relationship we will keep the rules so that nothing will creep in and destroy that relationship. You see, the obedience of a person who focuses on having a relationship with God will be motivated by love 
and by a healthy concern to keep the relationship forever. On the other hand, the person who focuses on the outward acts of obedience while neglecting the intimacy needed to sustain a relationship will fail and fall into a sense of duty and a sense of works. You see, Christianity is never a matter of duty. It's not a matter of works, but it's a matter of the heart. Legalism is simply an attempt at keeping the rules while neglecting the intimacy of the relationship. However, the other extreme is lawlessness, which is a false assumption that the relationship will always be intact, even if you continually break the rules by having other lovers. Jesus is our bridegroom, and he will only accept our complete devotion. He will not allow our affection and our devotion to be divided. No different than a husband. He would never tolerate the continual betrayal of his wife. Jesus addressed this one. Uh, one day he was, he was teaching and he, 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 he was speaking to one of the Pharisees who was a lawyer. And the lawyer asked him, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, we all know this. He says, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest command. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He goes on to say this. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. As a believer, you and I shouldn't avoid an adulterous relationship just because we're trying to keep the law of God. No. We avoid it because we love our wives or our husband and our children. You don't want anything to happen that would destroy the wonderful relationship with your spouse and your family, or, or more importantly, with God himself. On top of that, God has opened your eyes to so many things. He's blessed you with so much. Why would you spit in his face? Why go back to the vomit of a sinful life after experiencing his sweet presence? This is why Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. In 1 John 4, verses 10 through 12, he says this. He says, herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us, and his love is perfected in us. So how do we know that we really love one another? Well, 1 John 5, 2 and 3 says, By this we know that, the, that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. You see, loving God and our neighbor is expressed and proven by us keeping his commandments. We obey God because we love and we respect him. And we also know that there are dire consequences if we commit spiritual adultery against him. We're warned of these consequences. A little bit later in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, uh, 
John warns us, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abides forever. Man, this is in the New Testament. And the Apostle John is addressing his children in the faith. He's not only addressing his children or the converts in the faith, but he's addressing all of us. He's addressing all men. Notice, it says, if any man love the world. The word any means any. That's all of us. That means saved or unsaved. If you love this world, if you love the world, it's going to be hard for you to follow Christ. You see, when we read these scriptures, we begin to realize the reason why the example of our lives is so important. You see, our actions will either draw people to Jesus or they drive them away. This is why our obedience is proof that we really do love others. Oh, I can tell you this. Only eternity is going to tell of all the souls that have gone to hell because of the habitual sin in a Christian's life. Paul, he continues here in Romans chapter 7. Let's pick it up. In verse 5, by describing what the law did to him. And to the rest of us, when we walked in the flesh before we came to Jesus. He says, for when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Paul goes on to tell how the law made him understand what sin was. In verse 13 of chapter 7, he says, the, 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 the law made sin become exceedingly sinful. In the rest of the chapter, Paul accurately expounds upon the ongoing war between our flesh and our spirit. And, and he never concedes defeat. Even when he cries out in Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Listen to what he says. He asks the question and he answers, I thank God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Can I ask you a question? Think about this. Do you think that the Apostle Paul was saying that he was walking in the flesh, that he was a slave to sin? If, if, if that was so, I think it would contradict what he said in chapter 6 about sin not having dominion over the believer. And that we are not to yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness. It would also repudiate what we are about to see in the next chapter. In chapter 8, we're going to see some things here that are amazing. See, that's why context is so important. It would make the Apostle Paul out to be a hypocrite. You see, if a person preaches one thing and then lives another, are they not a hypocrite? That's why it's so difficult to be a leader in the church. Because we're constantly looking in the mirror of the Word of God. I want to conclude that the first part of Romans 7 is a discourse by the Apostle Paul giving us an accurate description of himself as a sinner, trying to keep the law of God without the help of Jesus in his life. 
Later in the chapter, he explains the ongoing war between the sinful nature and the new nature. The new nature of a born-again Christian and the fallen nature of the sin man, the, sin, the sinful nature of man. This is because there is a life and death struggle going on inside of the Christian who loves the Lord. But Paul wasn't confessing to an ongoing habitual sin that he willingly committed over and over. Rather, he recognized the constant presence of evil and the potential in himself to give in to the temptations and the lust of the flesh. This is why we see his jubilant thanksgiving to Jesus for deliverance in verse 25. He knows Jesus is the source of his deliverance. So if Paul was not using this discourse in Romans 7 to justify gross habitual sin in his life, then neither should you and I. So now let's take a minute and let's look at Romans 8. And uh, Romans 8, in this chapter, uh, it starts off with a glorious affirmation. Romans 8, 1, you all know it. It says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those or to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now, unfortunately, many people stop right there and they fail to quote the rest of the verse. The rest of the verse says this. It says, Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. See, Paul goes on throughout the whole book of uh, the, this chapter, and he repeats this theme. In verse 2 through 4 of, of Romans 8, he says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, can you see that? The righteousness of the law is fulfilled in those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So, then it is apparent that the Christian who is walking after the flesh can't use Romans 8.1 or Romans 7 to justify their wicked ways in the sight of God. Neither can they use those passages out of context to teach unconditional eternal security. Therefore, in conclusion, seeing that this issue of how we walk is so important to our survival, we need to more closely look at what it means to walk after the flesh. Because, quite frankly, the consequences are eternal. Romans 8 and verse 5 says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. That, that Greek word in there for the word mind is this. It's the, it's the word called, in this verse, it's called phreneo which means to exercise the mind, to entertain or have sentiment or opinion, by implication to be mentally disposed, more or less earnestly in a certain direction. It's intensive to interest oneself with or concern or obedience. It's the setting of affections on things. It's about being care-driven or careful. It's uh, being like or of one or being the same and let this mind or this regard or this savor or the way we think be 
common. That's a pretty heavy definition. But uh, let this mind, this commonality be in you. Simply put, if we're walking after the flesh, and if the majority of our time, our thoughts and our actions are spent pursuing the indulging and indulging the lust of the flesh, then we're in trouble. But if our affections are on the things of this world, and if we savor the sensuality of this present evil age, then we're walking according to the flesh, and we have to understand this kind of living leads to spiritual death. Romans 8, 6, it says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You see, the Holy Spirit even gave us greater revelation when he inspired the Apostle Paul to write in the book of Galatians. In Galatians 5, verses 13 through 21, Paul wrote this, he says, For brethren, brothers and sisters, that's us in the church, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word. Even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and the such like, of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, the day which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Hmm. I don't know. Paul's writing about loving our neighbor. He's about walking in the spirit and not in the flesh. Then he describes exactly what it means to walk after the flesh. The most chilling truth is what he says concerning the final destiny of those who walk after the flesh. After his list of sins of the flesh, he declares that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Hmm. That word in the Greek for the word do is a word proso, P-R-A-S-S-O. And it means to practice or to perform repeatedly or habitually. Now, it differs from another Greek word, poieo, P-O-I-E-O, which refers to a single act. So what Paul's really saying is that, you know, Without a doubt, the Christian whose life is characterized by habitual sin, that's the Christian, that's the person who will not inherit the kingdom of God. I do not think that now is the time for believers to treat our salvation lightly. In fact, I think it's time that we need to be sober. We need to begin to seek God with all of our hearts. We need to begin to love our neighbors. We need to prepare ourselves for the days that lie ahead. Right now, we have faced lockdown. We are seeing corruption and wickedness and evil on a scale worldwide that I don't believe we've really been able to see before. And 
The Bible says that in the end of time, the love of most would grow cold. Can you understand that this is a time of great testing and great temptation for you and I as believers? Some of us are cutting away the fetters. Some of us are sending ourselves out into the deep saying, ah, I'm just becoming weary of doing good. The Bible says don't become weary in well-doing, for there's a great reward if you faint not. I want to encourage you today that I do believe that those of us who endure to the end shall be saved. I do believe that we need to fight and resist sin. I do believe that we need to take a good hard look at ourselves. We need to ask ourselves the questions. Am I living in the faith? Am I walking by faith? Am I living in the spirit or is my flesh taking dominion over me? There's hope. There's hope. Right now, you can get help even. Number one, the greatest way to get help is to read the Bible. The Bible says that the entrance of his word is life, light. The Bible tells us that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Sometimes we need help from another source. Not only from the, the Word of God, but from prayer. Prayer is one-third talking and two-thirds listening. What is God saying to you? What does God himself have to say to your heart? Take time to listen to him today. Take time this week to set time aside to listen to what God has to say to your heart. Oh, it may not be pretty. He may convict you of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But with every temptation, he makes a way of escape. And then third... You may need help right now. You may need the fellowship of the saints. You know, this COVID is diabolical. It's diabolical. It's wrong. I can tell you right now, it's wrong that we can have a thousand people in a grocery store, but we can't have 50 people at church. It's wrong that we can fill up an airplane full of people, but we can't put people in our church pews. This is not quarantine. It's a form of control that is really diabolical. The Bible tells us that the church, that those of us as members of the church, should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. And we must do so all the more as we see the day of Jesus approaching. I believe there's a day and a time coming when we will gather as the church. But in the meantime, it's important that you continue to gather in your soul groups. It's time that you gather together with other believers. And do not let the fear of this sickness and disease get on you. Because I can tell you right now, fear is worse than the disease itself. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of love, of strength and of a sound mind. If today, right now, you need help, there are some numbers on the screen. On the other end of that line, there's somebody there that'll listen to you, that'll help you. They may themselves not be able to help you the way you need to be helped. But they'll know how to either pray with you, or get you to a pastor, or direct you to a counselor, or help you in your marriage, or help you in your struggle against the flesh, against sin. As a church, our goal is to preach the truth. We love you, and my goal as a pastor is to not only confront you and those who are listening with truth, but my own self. It's time that we take all this to heart. I love you. I believe that God is working in you. May God's grace be with you this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us online. We hope and trust that you've been blessed by this service. 
Stay connected with us through our social media platforms, Facebook and WhatsApp. As we go, stay safe, stay blessed, stay connected.